0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And I've got a special guest today, Eva Balin. She is a director of the Graph Foundation, and also an investor at eGirl Capital. I'm super excited to talk to her about both of those things. And we're going to be talking a little bit about anonymous culture, pseudo anonymous culture as well, which is something that's been talked about a lot on crypto Twitter. And a lot of you have DM'd me questions about that. So I'm really excited to have Eva today to share her thoughts on that whole community and that whole world. welcome, Eva. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Diana. Excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So before we dive into the Graph Foundation and eGirl Capital, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got into crypto in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I went to business school in Canada and then went immediately into management consulting. This was about four to five years ago. Maybe longer. And I was working mostly on financial services, so working with payments companies, credit cards, banks, anything from helping with improving their legacy infrastructure to doing market analysis on payment behaviors. And at that time, my brother was working at Consensus, building out Bounties Network. So I started learning a lot more about Ethereum. And it got to a point where you know I was running to the bathroom to see what was going on in crypto Twitter instead of paying attention to my client. So I knew it was time to leave. So I defected into Ethereum and started working at Omise Go which was a payments provider, trying to build out a layer two for payments and then eventually moved to Bangkok to work there. You know, spent a year or so there, came back to North America, started helping out with a few other projects like the Ethereum Foundation, and eventually landed myself at The Graph.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like crypto Twitter was sort of your initial source of learning, and I'm sure it helped to have your brother in the space as well. When was it that it clicked for you and how did you wrap your mind around it and make it all make sense?
1: Yeah, so having worked on payments companies and you know projects related to how banks worked, I had realized pretty quickly that a lot of the problems that we see in society and you know what Occupy Wall Street was about really don't have anything to do necessarily with the banks themselves. It has to do a lot with the technology that isn't built in, you know, a very open and decentralized manner. And so the technology itself allows for monopolization. So naturally banks being the ones that are implementing that monopolistic behavior. And so upon realizing that and then seeing Ethereum as this, you know, greenfield opportunity for anyone to be able to build on top of Ethereum, not needing to be permissioned by a specific company or institution, was so clear to me why we needed that, just like having worked on that similar industry. More personally, you know, my parents were immigrants from Russia to Canada. They escaped, you know, the communist regime. So any of these sort of authoritarian or communist or, uh, you know, very strict types of decision making or governance processes, you know, really hit home to me. So to me, you know, Ethereum and blockchains are much more about the philosophical movement of decentralizing decision-making power and empowering users to participate. To me, that was, you know, one of the most important things you could be working on in the world today.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love hearing people who have like personal stories about how they got into it, because I think it means so much more to them and they like understand the root of what we're trying to build here. Diving into the graph then, how did you transition from... From the Ethereum Foundation and Omi's Go into the graph, how did you get connected with the graph?
1: Yeah, so I was spending some time between projects, one of them being the Ethereum Foundation, and I was really trying to find what was the next big challenge in Ethereum. I'm not by background an engineer, although, you know, I could code and understand technical writing. It was clear to me that there was, you know, other ways to add value that, you know, were quite critical for the time that Ethereum was at. So, you know, Ethereum being several years old, hadn't quite achieved, you know, the user mass adoption. And it was clear there were layers of the stack that just weren't completed. And then as, you know, Amanda, Management consultant that had worked very closely with data um, being an analyst the graphs problem you know seemed very clear to me that you know we do need open data we do need um, apis that aren't necessarily gated by a company similar to how a Bloomberg currently gates its terminal and then furthermore you know even within the DAP developer Community it was clear that what a subgraph does a subgraph being the open API that the graph indexes is you know significant for a developer where you can completely remove the backend work that they need to do otherwise so it was clear to me that you know from the end user from the analyst the trader the developer perspective the graph was solving a really critical problem that hadn't been solved yet in web3 and in my mind you know these decentralized layers um, need to be built out before we can start building really cool end user applications.
0: Yeah, for sure. And let's just take a step back for anybody who's not familiar with the graph. We did have Yaniv on to talk about the graph protocol before. But for anybody who missed that episode and isn't familiar, can you just break down for, you know, a a total beginner, what the graph is and how the graph can help developers?
1: Yeah, so the short-winded story is the graph is the Google of blockchain. So we provide the back-end indexing of data that you often know of as Google, whereas Google also has the front-end search engine. More technically, you know, all data that is on a blockchain you know, is what is often seen on a front-end application. But for a DApp or a developer to query that from the blockchain is actually quite challenging. And so the graph creates an obfuscated layer where you know, it's very generalized. Uh, developers only have to query APIs called subgraphs. So there's a standardized way of querying those APIs. The subgraphs themselves are open source, meaning that when one developer creates a subgraph for a specific protocol like Uniswap, developers don't need to do that redundant work in-house or with their own proprietary code. So really enabling much more innovation and collaboration at the API level. And then lastly, actually decentralizing that component altogether. So typically in Web2, you have, you know, your own centralized server or database that you're running where you're indexing all your data. And by indexing, I mean, you know, just simply organizing data in a way that you then want to present it to your UI. So going with the Uniswap example, all the Uniswap data, you know, on Uniswap.io is indexed by the graph. So maybe that's historical volumes, maybe that's pricing, whatever you might want. And so doing that in a decentralized way where you have a network of indexers or a network of node operators that are providing that service instead of your team or your project relying on one centralized server. And the problems it solves is, you know, classic central points of failure. So maybe a server going down, uh, maybe actual security risk of that server being hacked. And then even more broadly, you know, developers don't have to then think about the backend at all. They don't need to be a backend developer to build a simple, you know, front-end application. Um, and they can rely on a network of indexers. So, you know, the network that launched in December 2020, just about a year ago, has had zero downtime because you can always ensure that at least one indexer will be there to serve your queries. That's awesome. So speaking of the graph network, I know there's this whole graph ecosystem.
0: Can you explain all the different parts of it and maybe like how the graph foundation fits in with the graph protocol with the larger graph ecosystem?
1: Yeah, so I can start with the organizational side. So the Graph protocol was launched by the Graph Foundation and the initial team Graph protocol. Post-launch, these teams split into what is now known as Edge and Node, which is a core developer team kind of coming from that initial team that launched the network. And then the Graph Foundation that's focused on everything related to the neutrality of the protocol or the ecosystem, focusing on growing the ecosystem. So that might be including grants, uh, governance, maybe some project management of technical projects, including some of the protocol updates, doing a lot of the growth initiatives, whether it might be marketing or community, and really educating our ecosystem in web three about subgraphs and what you can do with them. Because we see subgraphs really as a catalyst, um, you know, for accelerating web three development, where web two developers, you know, might need to know a lot about Solidity or the blockchain, but maybe they don't need to then learn also how to index. And so the subgraph being a tool to actually accelerate development and learning within the DAP ecosystem. In terms of the way, you know, everyone interacts. So we have, like I mentioned, Edge and Node is a core developer, and we have three other teams that are core development contributors. So that would be StreamingFast and Figment, who recently were awarded very large grants. And we've got a few other contributors that have received grants over the last several months, including Semiotic and a few individual contributors who could be considered core developers, essentially. And so everyone here is working together. We now have a, a fairly distributed uh community of, of contributors. And the foundation there really is to facilitate, you know, a lot of this work, making sure that Milestones are being met, aligning teams, really enabling the same functions of a DAO, but starting off a little slower and starting to also build out our own DAO design. So we're really focused on all of the governance and grants aspects of our ecosystem. Meanwhile, our core developers like Edge and Node are focused on the development work itself. Now, as part of the network, we also have several different stakeholders. So um, I mentioned indexers. These are the Node operators of the network itself. We have the subgraph developers. So those are the actual engineers building these subgraphs that don't necessarily Have to be the same projects developer. And then we have curators and delegators. So curators signal on subgraphs, they stake GRT on the subgraphs to indicate which of these APIs or projects is most high quality and should be prioritized. And then we have delegators who also, you know, maybe want to contribute but don't want a super active role. And so they delegate their GRT to indexers. Um, So both of these roles, curator and delegator, are non-technical. You don't even need to be an engineer or really understand. You know, code as much as understanding, okay, these projects that are built by these developers are high quality and we should make sure our ecosystem is prioritizing them.
0: I want to hone in on a couple of those things. I'd love to hear when the Graph Foundation started to be built out. It was built out as sort of like an extension of the Graph protocol or just a part of this larger Graph ecosystem. And then over time, you've been thinking more about decentralizing it and essentially turning it into a DAO. I'd love to hear about that process of how do you turn something that's initially centralized into you know something that's decentralized? And then how Your team has been thinking through like all the aspects of creating a DAO, governance, scaling, all of the big questions that people are thinking about.
1: Yeah, so the Graph Foundation is sort of the steward in the ecosystem. So we oversee currently the community treasury that is also overseen by the Graph Council. So the foundation was nominated by the Graph Council to oversee some of these community initiatives while we were progressively decentralizing. And I'd say that's the key word. So when we launched the network, you know, we were taking the approach of progressively decentralizing our ecosystem. You know, now we're we're there. You know, we've got quite a few different contributors, we've got a lot of different expertise entering the space. So there, there isn't one single organization leading the charge, uh, so to speak. The Graph Foundation itself, you know, we are here to serve a largely a bootstrapping function where, um, you know, in the first six months, we were really there to support indexers, funding a lot of indexer tooling, um, overseeing various projects that would improve perhaps state decentralization or helping indexers just grow their knowledge to be able to contribute and continuing to do so with much more focus now on DevX. You know, what do subgraph developers need, dApp developers need? How do we get more of them integrated? And also largely our community. So we're looking to launch an advocacy program soon and get more individuals across the globe involved in non-technical and technical ways. In terms of your second question, so migrating to a DAB you know, I, I used to work with the Moloch DAO team, have been in the space for quite some time, and things we've realized is, you know, it's very easy to launch a DAO and kind of expect certain human behaviors to come out of it. Whereas what we realize we're doing is kind of taking the human aspect first. So uh, we have quite a few grantees, over 100 grantees at the moment. We have several domain experts. So these are individuals that help us interview, help us conduct due diligence on grants. Uh, We also release every quarter our uh, announcement of grants and also asking for more input. So continuing to maintain a very open process while also being under uh, the purview of the Graph Council. So the Graph Council is 10 individuals that represent five stakeholder groups in our ecosystem. And so emulating a DAO in this sense um, has been our first priority. And now what we're looking to do is realize, you know, how do we scale this in a way that removes us perhaps as a facilitator or organizer and enables greater trust in our ecosystem so our grantees, our network participants can get more involved. We're doing a lot of research. So we were recently cited uh, in Nathan Schneider's paper where he reflected on some of the ways governance has worked and not worked. Um, and one reflection he had is, you know, account. Enables uh, a lot more trust in, you know, the kinds of decisions that you're making. Enables uh, greater representation, whereas token-based systems aren't necessarily as safe long-term because it could be riddled by plutocracy or plutocratic behavior. And so we're we're taking our time, you know, in figuring out what is the ideal mechanism for our ecosystem given its current maturity and, and participation.
0: Yeah. And can you explain more how the council model works? I think like the criticism, the main criticism I've heard being, you know, that it reflects it. It looks a lot more similar to a centralized model where you have sort of like a few people, you know, or uh, however big your council is in charge of all the decision making. I guess, like, how do we solve the issue of this just turning into a traditional organization, a corporation as we know it today? Is it that you have, you know, like term limits, essentially, or like regular voting for, you know, who people want to see in the council and out? Or like, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So our council has always been sort of a first step. Even our announcement on the council and its decision-making process um, was recognizing that the future likely holds, you know, a much more decentralized process. Maybe it's nested multi-sigs or nested DAOs, but largely, you know, following a similar structure of representing the various groups in our ecosystem. So the council is made up of five groups with two representatives per group. And those groups are delegators, indexers, DAP developers, research and security folks. Um, as well as the initial team, the initial team representing a core development group. So there's definitely opportunity to start expanding this as our ecosystems expand themselves. As I mentioned, we now have welcomed several other core developers um, to our community that, you know, likely want to get more involved. For the time being, you know, we are fairly transparent about, um, you know, all all the activities of the council. Chatham House rules are followed with our biweekly meetings that are also posted to the forums. Every single graph improvement proposal, or what we call GIPs, are passed in the forum and also proceed with a snapshot vote prior to actually being voted by the council. So the community has immense time to get involved and can even be the ones to recommend specific GIPs um, in the forum or by joining index or office hours or a core dev call. Um, So all of these are open processes. And then the council will typically follow the result of the snapshot vote or seek greater due diligence if that's what's needed. You know, I agree with you. I think there's a A lot of room for us to grow into a more decentralized process. But for now, this has been sort of our our method of bootstrapping our governance so we can learn from our community, you know, what fits best rather than just applying um, a generalized solution
0: yeah, for sure, that makes a lot of sense. Another element you mentioned earlier uh, that the Graph Foundation is really in charge of is education. And I was wondering, even educating devs who are already, you know, a very smart group of people, I think it still can be confusing to understand the graphs, subgraphs, all of these things. So what methods have you found to be most effective when it comes to ed- educating, you know, devs or the public or whoever?
1: Yeah, so the cool thing about subgraphs is they're written in TypeScript, which is not that far off from JavaScript. So one angle we've taken is if you are completely new to blockchain, you know, nothing about Web3, maybe try getting into crypto through the graph because maybe, you know, it might be a little easier for you to learn TypeScript, maybe take a look at a pre-existing schema for a subgraph and then recreate or maybe fork one. And by doing so, they can also learn about the protocol. So that's one path we've taken, um, especially with our hackathons and grantees, where a lot of the grantees, you know, have interest in building a subgraph, maybe have done it once, but don't have enough confidence or ability to actually make it their full-time job. And so we've given them grants to build out subgraphs for different teams. Like I mentioned, a lot of the subgraphs built aren't even built by the project itself. It's maybe a project really wants one, doesn't have the capacity. So they come to us to help them find a grantee to build it out. Um, So that's one way we've, we've kind of been growing our our sphere of potential subgraph developers. Another is getting really involved in the university space. So we were speaking initially with a team in Milan that was driving this sort of blockchain open data module. Uh, We were speaking with someone at UBC, University of British Columbia, and looking now to expand even to others in Europe. But basically bringing home this idea that Subgraphs themselves in nature aren't very different from an API that you might have used in Web2, but they open up this whole world of you know Web3 and crypto. So if we can actually get into the students, you know, teaching them about these tools, Ethereum, what is the EVM? You know, what is a seed phrase? How do you you know even think about on-chain data early? Then they can start building DApps much sooner. Maybe even leave university. Who knows? But those have been our avenues so far, and now we're starting to expand much more into this sort of freelance or free for all education. So a of these online courses, getting involved, maybe even in in in-person workshops as the world opens up, really trying to figure out how do we achieve this next 1 million developers in Web3.
0: Yeah. Uh, And then the last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is this element of community. You've brought it up many times and the graph has a super strong community. And that's a question that a lot of new projects are facing is how do we build this strong community? Web3 is built, you know, so heavily on community and vibes. So I, I'd love to hear like some of your thoughts on what the graph has done right in terms of building this like super strong community.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it was a multi-year process. Uh, so first off, we started with a hosted service, not a decentralized network, and the goal there was to achieve product market fit. So we were getting user feedback from developers for several years before the network actually launched, and that allowed you know developers to actually become much more used to the the technology itself, provide feedback, maybe even have you know a relationship with the development team. So, uh, you know, to inform feature development. So that was number one. Number two, I'd say, you know, we really thought about what is the education path um, before we launch the network that has to occur for people to get involved. So we had an incentivized testnet that ran about six months. This was for node operators to understand what is the graph? How do you run a graph node? You know, what are the mechanics that you have to think about? economics, etc., And we also ran similarly an incentivized curator program. And this was targeted to non-technical people who maybe had never even coded before, but you could learn about a subgraph. So you could actually learn how to develop a subgraph, maybe how to assess high quality. And you know, if you were not interested in coding, you could maybe just write about it. What are the benefits of open data? Um, maybe creating educational materials for others to get involved. So both of these programs we ran for about six months. It allowed us to build a community that was quite loyal and also interested. They were you know not um, afraid to ask stupid questions they got to know us and the rest of our community and have now stuck through because they recognize what we're building is really valuable and they can contribute i'd say the largest thing you know that that separates our protocol from others is that it doesn't matter how technical you are there's at least one role that you could align yourself to and that makes it really open for then anyone to join rather than someone who might be only a devops engineer
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So looking ahead to the future, where do you hope to see the Graph Foundation and the larger Graph ecosystem in, you know, let's say three to five years?
1: I mean, we always say this, the Graph is indexing all the world's data, taking that one step back. We need to get all the world's data on Web3. Um, so really making sure that we're helping dApps get that adoption, whether it's a DEX, whether it's you know a writing app. We're trying to become much more strategic with either how can a subgraph play a more significant role or how can we as the graph play a more significant role in dApp adoption. Also multi-blockchain. So currently we support over 19 EVM-based chains on the hosted service and Ethereum, and we'll be migrating all of those to the network, as well as supporting other chains like Solana, Near, Polkadot. Really anything that has a blockchain should be indexed by the graph or even has some kind of network. So also looking at specialty networks like Helium, Akash, really anything that has some kind of verifiability on a chain. And, you know, at that point, we'll start looking at how do we improve the infrastructure to actually meet everyone's goals? Because it's clear Web3 isn't going anywhere. You know, even just seeing Ethereum's NFT growth in the last six months is indicative of of where we're headed. So the graph really is focused on improving indexing performance, making sure all the subgraph features that developers want are built out. And once all that tooling and infrastructure is ready, then we can start actually helping build out really cool dApps on Web3. So one of the reasons I joined the graph, you know, was eventually to build out a search engine. So it'd be great if, you know, one day we can have that built out. Another place, you know, we'd like to see subgraphs use more in is a lot more of this cross-chain data. So one trend we've seen is a lot more wrapped Bitcoin or Bitcoin on DeFi use cases seeing a lot more adoption, which is indicative of just greater interest of interoperability or maybe bringing other chains onto Ethereum. So as we start to support more chains, I think we'll see a lot more of that play out.
0: Yeah, I would love to see a decentralized search engine like Google on Web3. And I mean, the graph is for sure the best position to build that out. So I can't wait to see that. Cool. So I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about eGirl Capital. So I think everybody's heard of eGirl Capital. You guys have been around since, I think, 2019. But a lot of people are confused about what eGirl Capital actually is. I think they see a bunch of, you know, a team of Anons running this, like, what seems to be a a venture capital fund of sorts. So tell us a little bit more about what eGirl Capital is and like how it was originally formed.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely been a mystery, even as we've been building it out. You know, I would say we didn't realize what it would become. But eGirl Capital first started out as a few friends, just, you know, shooting the shit in a Telegram channel, trading, uh, you know, information, data, um, sharing whatever it was. And we realized pretty quickly that we had a really unique set of of people in the group. So eGirl Capital is 14 people. Some of them are advisors. Some of them are more contributing members. But the goal was, you know, how do we bring our diversity and actually maybe, um, you know, impact? the venture capital industry in a way that You know, would be useful to projects. So, um, you know, myself, I'm not by trade a a VC. Many of our members are either engineers or work full time on other projects. Some of them are leading projects. And so we have this unique position where we're also builders and users and ecosystem contributors and also want to actually participate as as a capital allocator. So we got our shit together earlier this year, I would say, and have been investing in some really critical projects. Our thesis is largely to support, you know, really critical information infrastructure or primitives in the space that we see being really useful in the future. So some of our investments have focused around layer two, um, maybe some DeFi primitives. And so we're looking to support any project we think is going to be valuable and sustainable.
0: Then and do you operate as a, like a fully decentralized organization? What does the process look like if somebody comes through and they're like, hey, I just heard about this new project, I think we should invest. And then what, what happens next?
1: Yeah, we definitely operate in a decentralized. Fashion in that we have to have a certain number of members agree to the deal or want to participate in the deal itself. So that's one unique element of our fund is that not everyone is participating in every deal. But you know, for us to actually consider an e-girl investment and want to uh, support the the project itself, um, there has to be sufficient buy-in. So most of this activity is currently occurring off-chain, although we have explored maybe some kind of on-chain decentralized tooling like a DAO. But you know, to your point, uh, there, there is a lot of sort of coordination work that occurs when you have this many people. so you know we are fairly careful with the investments we make and we don't really make that decision unless there's enough alignment
0: that makes sense and another question I had for you is around this like anonymous or pseudo anonymous culture. all of the investors, all fourteen of you are either completely anonymous or pseudo anonymous on online and can you speak a little bit to like what went behind that decision. And also like for people listening who maybe aren't familiar, are like new to crypto or like aren't familiar with this anonymous culture. Can you try to explain like what the draw is behind being anonymous online?
1: Totally. So just to clarify, I'm not a non or pseudonon, although I have an image of myself that is of an anime girl. But there are three, I think it's still three, doxxed members of the 14. So to your point, 11 are pseudonym. And pseudonon being that, you know, online or in our communities, no one knows what their birth name is, but perhaps somewhere in the world they, you know, have disclosed that. So um, there are a few e-girl members that I've met, although most of them I have not, nor do I necessarily know their birth names. But the cool thing to me about, you know, specifically crypto and pseudonymity interacting uh, is that crypto... Crypto enables us to actually use different usernames, essentially, you know, our wallets um, on different applications. So the ease of creating a new identity you know, has never been simpler and not in the civil attack context, but in the idea of, you know, enabling yourself to have different characters. So there's, you know, this idea that you can only have one job or you can only be one person, but what if you could be many different people? And what if you could have many different jobs and all of that together sustained your income? And maybe one of your personas is an indexer on the graph. And maybe another one of your personas is a liquidity provider for a DEX. And a third persona is an NFT artist. And, you know, the reason you want to keep these separate is perhaps different brands, um, perhaps for accounting purposes or for whatever reason. But the cool thing that Web3 enables is for us to have that kind of composability of our identities across applications. So to me, that was really fascinating just meeting you know, the other e-girls in that they were you know, creating reputations around this profile. And just because we couldn't assert a specific KYC or birth name to them doesn't mean that that reputation didn't exist. Like you mentioned, most of the people, you know, had either been around since 2019 or earlier in crypto. So they've been working hard on building out their own communities, their own expertise. And they're just now a member of eGirl. Often when people ask me, you know, like, how do you trust them? You know, ah, this is crazy. And I'm like, well, people are always building out their reputations. And, you know, in theory, someone could rug pull you if they were a But it's actually really challenging to build up a reputation, you know, even to have a following on Twitter or to have people trust you um, and offer to bring you into their project into their trusted community takes a while and so nobody in e girl is here to you know disrupt that or create any problems you know they simply are identifying with their their personality that they have that you know today
0: yeah and one thing i've been thinking about a lot with like a non or pseudo non culture in crypto is this question around you know how do we like form human connections with people who are anonymous online like how do we form a connection with you know, somebody who's a cat or a penguin online, and that's all we know about them is, is that one thing. And if we're working in the context of a DAO, for instance, which a lot of people are involved in now, you know, somebody feels like overworked, burnt out, wants to take a step back. How can we show them that sort of empathy if we've never connected with them on a human level, like don't know their names, don't know anything about them because they choose to be anonymous?
1: That's a really good question. I think that identity ends up coming down to behavior more than a specific label. And so, you know, wh- whether that's in a Discord or a Telegram group or watching on-chain behavior, so maybe they're voting or uh, past DeFi activity, um, you can actually develop that identity and that personality very quickly. Um, so, you know, in, in, in talking about empathy, you know, I feel like I know e as much as any person I've met in person because I'm still able to have, you know, really real conversations. We often, and do voice chats, you know, all of the things that you do as a human member of a team, you can still do. You just don't necessarily know their birth name or what their actual, you know, face looks like. But that doesn't necessarily stop you from also developing all those other behaviors and, you know, relationships that you'd have with them otherwise. Um, So I think that we almost need to change our tune a little bit to what does it mean to have identity? Does identity literally mean the way I was born? Or is it how do I identify today and what are my behaviors associated with that identity? One thing I'm personally really excited about is the VTuber movement where, you know, you can recreate your image, you know, with maybe an anime character or, um, you know, using different kinds of AI and I can behave as, you know, a different person. And that's pretty cool in the context of, you know, having different jobs. So a lot of people don't explore different jobs because they're worried about conflating those brands or that work. But imagine if, you know, Diana, you could have a different version of Diana that, you know, was a gamer and you were Twitch streaming all the time and that was your new personality. And, you know, people could maybe still get to know you by talking to you in the chat, but they know you as that Diana, not this Diana. It's a little dystopian to think about.
0: And I think like, I haven't really like formed my own opinions around like, is this, you know, the, is this good or bad? And I'm sure there's, you know, there's no good or bad. There's like good and bad things to everything. But I have thought about like, is is it good for us to sort of like decompose our identity into these different parts? Or should we like embrace all parts of who we are in all settings? Like, I'm not really sure.
1: That's a good point. Like, why aren't we all versions of ourselves you know in the one form you know that's fair criticism the experimentalist in me is excited about the idea of compartmentalizing because often we're you know in our own conflicts all the time right do i want to do this oh i'm not sure how this will be perceived by my boss or i'm not sure if this aligns with these goals but you know there's kind of this world of opportunity now where we can if we have the time capacity and resources um assert different goals that maybe are completely unrelated but you know might actually be better off if they remained unrelated And so now we can do that. And with, you know, ENS names, um, you know, being connected to wallets, we create this whole world where maybe even usernames are associated with that work and that identity in a different way.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, cool. Well, I like to conclude every podcast episode with a segment I call Explain Your Tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter and I pull out some interesting or cryptic tweets and I give you a chance to explain them. So your Twitter is just like full of these interesting and cryptic tweets, but I try to pull out a few like good ones that I think you can really, you know, explain to people what you're saying there. So the first one I've got is from September 24th, 2021. You tweeted, DAOs are the anti-government government.
1: What do you mean? Yeah, this is a great one. So, along our process of figuring out how to construct a DAO, what's the best DAO for our ecosystem? I realize that a lot of what the foundation or a DAO often does is similar to what we tell a government to do. So maybe it's public goods funding, keeping people secure, maybe being the you know lender of last resort, whatever it might be. But the fundamental difference is that a government, you know, we're, we tell them not to have any incentives, right? They're not allowed to invest in stocks, uh, you know, and we create all these different rule sets around them. And that to me, doesn't really make sense because we know that these folks have self-interest. We see insider trading constantly. So the problem here isn't that a government exists or maybe even the mandate. It's how we're incentivizing and how we're organizing that government. In my mind, a DAO actually solves a lot of this because – A DAO, you know, doesn't enforce a single company or a single contributor. In fact, the goal of the DAO is to have as many diverse contributors with different self interests as possible, but to come to terms with aligning on whatever that mandate may be. A DAO, you know, often operates like a government in that it's providing the same services, but it's kind of like the anti-government, the anti, you know, centralized monopoly that's making decisions for its citizens. It's really the, how do we actually as citizens be participating in that governance to provide public goods funding.
0: Very interesting thought. Okay, so the next tweet I've got is from October 2nd, 2021. You said, Ethereum is a social network, we just need to expose its interfaces.
1: So I've been thinking a lot about what Vitalik said. I believe it was at ECC. He was trying to encourage more people to build social applications. Um, so you have Ave now trying to build a Twitter. And it occurred to me that, you know, like, what is a social network? Like, what are we trying to build when we say that? And often it's just the rails of communication. And what we have today is, you know, Ethereum, where you have an address and often an ENS associated with it. And that ENS then is essentially a profile. And so if we think about it that way, a wallet is a profile similar to a MySpace or a Facebook profile. And then Ethereum is the actual social network and the way we're communicating or behaving is maybe through our transactions. Maybe we're even sending signed messages as people do today. Um, And so maybe instead of thinking of social as, you know, a dApp, we could be thinking of, you know, Ethereum as social and we're just trying to build the right way to communicate on that network. So what is the best way we want to start communicating with each other um, between our our ENS or our wallet addresses that might be most composable for other dApps? I think it's still a work in progress thought, but my point being, Ethereum is the social network we're building on top of it. Yeah, for sure. And then
0: this last tweet I've got is from October 3rd, 2021. You said, It's hard to quantify the impact NFTs have on mental health and dopamine. Sometimes I'll be doom scrolling or having a bad day and a glorious art appears changing the mood instantly. Art has healing powers and crypto art is more than just about the culture, market or tech. And I really like this one because I feel like it goes back to like the core of what art is, which has somehow been forgotten, I think, like with NFT art. But like, would love to hear just your, your thoughts behind that tweet, too.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think we've kind of absorbed NFTs in this like capitalist narrative, which to be fair exists. And yes, NFTs are providing artists this new way of monetizing. But to me, like you're saying, like digital art and art in itself just has this whole other, you know, significance. And so literally sometimes I'll be on Twitter and I'll be just like trash, trash, trash about crypto and you see a piece of art and it really doesn't matter, you know, what price it was sold for, what platform, just its existence can actually change our lives, you know, with it. Ethereum and Web3 kind of normalizing NFTs, what we're really doing is normalizing galleries um, and do-it-yourself galleries. And instead of having to literally go to a gallery and pay for a ticket and do this whole process, we can actually have these micro galleries on our feeds, whether it's Twitter, whether it's OpenSea or SuperRare, but normalizing this ability for art to impact our lives in ways that we hadn't before.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for taking the time to come on today. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then also where people can go to learn more
1: about the graph and to connect with eGirl. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Eva Balin. That would be the best place to connect. To learn more about The Graph, I suggest heading to thegraph.com or thegraph.com slash discord. We have so many people in our community willing to help you regardless of your question. And to learn more about eGirl, I also suggest following us on Twitter. Uh, We have a pretty robust blog called eGirl Insights that releases stuff weekly or monthly.
0: I have to shout out the blog. I've read like all of your articles and there's so much alpha in those articles. Like I can't believe this is like free content, but it's amazing. So everybody go check it out.
1: <laughs> I love to hear that you're a reader.
0: Yeah, thanks again so much, Eva. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.